stocks, bonds, ETFs, straight out of downtown Chicago. This is Zach's Market Edge. Welcome to Zach's Market Edge, the podcast about investing in your life. I'm your host, Tracy Reinick. And this week, I'm joined by Zach's chief equity strategist, John Blank, to talk about the economy again. But this time, we're not talking about a recession. There is none, and there's none on the horizon. So no recession talk this time. But there's still a lot of interesting things going on in the economy. There's there's other worries other than the recession, it seems. And some of that is the I word, inflation. Are we going to get inflation? What does that even mean? Where should you be investing right now? Stocks are at all-time highs again, and they're they're very hot here in 2021. Is it too hot? Should you be sitting on the sidelines waiting, or are there still some uh, decent bargains and whatnot out there, or should you just be diving into the momentum stocks? That's all that we're going to talk about here. There's a lot going on, like I said. So welcome, John. Tracy, good to be back. Yeah, so this is the first time in years that we are not going to talk about the recession. <laughs> so that's that's a relief. Yeah, it is a relief. Um, we're definitely not going to have a recession. Is given the fiscal stimulus and the monetary policies. But, Tracy, we should point out um, caseloads in places like India and Brazil are extremely high, and the world death rate is higher than it used, ever has been. And outside the United States, in places where activity indexes are measured in Europe, for example, they're at a two-thirds activity. So this conversation about no recession only applies to the United States in a very aggressive Stimulus regime, a very aggressive monetary regime with a lot of vaccination. Okay, so that brings up a quick question right off the bat then. If some of these uh, you know, other countries are still in very severe COVID outbreaks and several have been doing more lockdowns and that kind of thing, can the U.S. really be this like lone you know, hot economy out there on its own? Yeah, uh, you know, I think the answer is yes, for okay. sure. And it's because we're so big that our trade accounts largely are driven by China's goods production anyways. Yeah. And it's, you know, where we get uh, more issues is there's going to be no traveled to three-fourths of the world for a lot longer than people realize. Right. Um, and and those people aren't coming here. So I think from a international tourism perspective going both ways, it's, it's a headwind that's going to remain for longer than people think. But otherwise, I don't think it's going to matter. Okay. Well, that's, that's also encouraging. Yeah. And I, you, know, I'm, you know, we're looking at that, talking about the CPI, I've just pulled up the uh, 12-month percent change on what's called the all-items U.S. city average for all urban consumers, which is all-items is what is used, Tracy, by the Social Security Administration. You know, this is not the, what's called the core, which is less food and energy, right? Okay. But if you just all-items it, what I notice, I'm just looking at it, is, you know, we were basically staggering around 2%. 2017, 2018, and 2019, pretty consistently, right? Okay. 2017, 2018, 2019, we got a touch three kind of once or twice or close to it, and then we got as low as like one seven ish. 
So one seven to three, two spiky things, but really, it is really clear that we're just about two for three years. And the reason I bring that up to start with is, number one, this idea of the core inflation rate is a media-driven phenomenon. It is not something the BLS um, cares about. And all items is important because it's actually what you're, if you're a retired person getting Social Security, this is what is used. Right. Right. Now, now why this matters is I, I try to educate you on this. I think I've gotten some headway here is government statistics that are, are used by the government for government purposes. And when they migrate into the financial market news media and to financial market thinking, they do apply, but they are secondary uh, tools. They're not for their primary use. Right. Right. So this is an example of this where, and the other thing that's interesting about 2017 and 2018, 2019, of course, is this was when it was extremely hot economy, three and a half percent unemployment, right? Yeah. So if you think that's the problem, an extremely hot economy, well, guess what? That's basically what that was. And now if I look at the latest, latest, latest data from this time series, and I do two things. One is I look at the data on an annualized basis, it's basically a 2.3-ish or so. It spiked up from basically close to zero to 2.3-ish. But it, and again, Tracy, that is basically back on the trend that it was at, staggering around two from 17, 18, 19, right before the spike down. So we're just back to what we did the last three years on that. Now, what's interesting is if I look at the monthly data, the additions month on month, I'll just read them out. I mean, across 2020, I get January. We'll start with January. Just listen to this, and then it'll be interesting. 0.2 for January, 0.1 for February, right? So before the COVID, small positive increments, you know, you're going to do two and a half a year if you do 0.2 a month, right? Yeah. You do 1.2 a year with 0.1 a month. So just keep this in mind. So all of a sudden, minus 0.3 in March, minus 0.7 in April, Minus 0.1 in May, and then June was plus 0.5. So we lost 1.1, minus 1.1 across March, April, and May. Now, why do we do that, Tracy? You know the answer, right? Well, COVID. COVID suppression. And we know the depth of the suppression by the depth of the numbers, meaning March was minus 0.3, because that was early. Right. April was minus 0.7 when everybody went into lockdown. Yeah. And May was minus 0.1 when basically some things at the very end of May probably loosened up a bit, right? Right. Now, what's interesting, then we go to June, 0.5, July, 0.5, August, 0.4. So last summer was actually quite hot, right? Yeah. We put on 1.4% annualized over three months. Again, that was when the COVID wasn't so bad. Summer was happening, right? Right. Now let's go to September, October, November, December, 0 0.2, 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.2, right? Okay. And that was when the big spike hit, right? Yeah. Now what's interesting about that versus March, April, May is um, it was positive, but just really weak, right? Right, right. But really weak means 0.2 times 12, 2.4, you know, basically that 2% number, right? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about January, February, March. January 0.3, February 
2021.4, March 0.6. Okay. So we haven't seen a 0.6 in the data I'm looking at until you go all the way back to the August of 2012 time. Wow. Okay. Right. So that is interesting. Now, you got to remember these are what's called base effects in there, which is, you know, if I'm looking at year on year back in March, April, and May, they're all negative. So annual numbers will go look bigger for the next three months for sure, no matter what. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's the first point I want to make with people is expect the market not to react to strong inflation numbers for the next three months. Right. Right. And then if we look at an annualized basis, um, and I, and I, again, just hear me out and do the, go on to www.bls.org, all items in U.S. city average, all urban consumers seasonally adjusted, type that into Google, pull, and then go to annual year on year, and you'll see that the trend over the last 10 years is basically 2%, and it hasn't changed now, right? Right. Um, there was a big move to zero, by the way, in the 2015-2016 period. Remember what that was all about? Was that the crude sell-off? Right. Yeah. Because, see, then you got the answer right. All items would include the crude sell-off. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it took it from basically two down to zero. We had, and they remember, you know, that's when our, we were all, you know, worried because the PMIs were bad. And, and right. All this stuff. And manufacturing recession. Manufacturing recession. Yeah. Right? That yeah. whole period. But, again, yeah. even at the worst it got, it got to zero. It basically stagnated, right? Okay. The yeah. hottest it got, which is interesting in this chart going back, is 2011. It did get up to 3.5%, Tracy. Oh, okay. Now, why was that? Well, I'm assuming that's coming out of the Great Recession. Right. Base effects, right? Yeah. Yeah, just because we were so beat up, we got up, you know, on, on nice year-on-year -year numbers. So a year-on-year -year number in the middle of, you know, summer of 11 was taken off of uh, – you know, back summer 10, right? Right, right. So again, we can easily get, and this is what Paul has said even today, we're talking on the April the 20th, is and we get a 3.5% year-on-year rate for the next three months, for sure. Yes. Not a problem to be expected, right? Yes. And he won't freak, and the market won't freak, and we know a market won't freak because that's that's expectation, and the 10-year treasury today is trading at 1.5658%, right? Huh, doesn't care at all. Doesn't care at all. And basically is saying, well, I mean, it just, you know, looking out, this is where we're going to be somewhere between 1.5 and 2, just like this chart I'm looking at, right? Yeah. And that's the thing to worry a lot about is um, in, a, in an environment where the media cares so much about immediacy, um, these longer dialogues just kind of get neglected, right? Definitely. Now, thing I want to tell people about is really interesting. I, I went to this focus on prices and spending, and this is written by the BLS, and it's called the so-called core index, history and uses of the index for all items less food and energy, right? Okay. So this is actually the BLS. Now, but I didn't write this. This is the BLS writing this about their, their own, quote, core index. They put it in, in apostrophe core index, which is all items, less food and energy. 
I was just talking about all items. Now we're talking about all items, less food and energy, which is what's called by the media, but not by the BLS, Tracy, the core, right? <laughs> right. Right? The, the, so first lesson, that when you hear someone say the core index, the BLS did not give you that, that title. Right. <laughs> right? Funny, yeah. I mean, just, just this is what's amazing. Like that is a title that is used to describe very quickly for you on a news flash. It the BLS itself does not have a core index, right? Okay. Yes. So what's interesting about this is as you read through uh, the story of less food and less energy, um, this is when it gets very interesting. The, they the wind of this bit to be. They took the food and the energy out. Well, they first took the food out in 1957. And what they say is in 1957, the CPI created an index for all items less food in recognition of the volatility in food prices due to seasonal and weather-related factors. The Cost of Living Council requested an index that excluded energy and well, but at first it was only less food, right? Yeah. The index for all items less food and energy was first published in April of 77. So first point is that all items less food starts in 57, all items less food and energy in 1977, right? Yeah. Now, we don't know what happened in the 70s. That was the era of oil embargo, right? Right. But this is another element of, along with the media, sensationalizing the term and not understanding it, not reading stuff like this. The other thing is the history of these data, right? These data tools, right? It kind of, I find it really interesting to know the intellectual history of when tools were born and what time, right? Yeah. So now we know all items less food and energy is not that old. It had two components that started one, all items less food for 20 years, and then all items less food and energy. And now we're 43 years, 44 years out from all items less food and energy, right? Right. And we've been through a financial crisis. We've got a housing asset boom. We've got Bitcoin, all this asset inflation. And, of course, this is relevant, and we're still using an index that's basically built properly for 1977. <laughs> that's right. Right? Yeah. yeah. So this is the other thing people need to realize. It's, a lot of people say, oh, government's irrelevant. You know, this is really a problem because it's so hard to get consensus about how to do this. You had to put a council together. It took 20 years to change from food to food and energy. And now we can't even get anything together to update, like, what we should do, right? Right. And also, just based on this background you're giving us, just thinking about, like, the food exemption from 1957, so that would make some sense because was the United States importing grapes from Chile in 1957 to keep the grape prices low in the wintertime? Were they importing the avocados at the same rate like that we are now? All these items that we get from global trade now that in 1957 we probably weren't, which is why the food prices from what you just said they excluded it because of the volatility there and the weather and the seasonality. But now, in 2021, there's no seasonality with food. Right. Because exactly of the importing. Yeah. So that that is really interesting because why do we, why do we, you know, exclude food still all these yeah. years later? 
Here's a really interesting part of this table. They, they have a table breakout from 1982 to December 2010, so 20, 30 years. And they had category total change and annualized change. Annualized change for all items over those 30 years was 2.93. Wow. Annualized change less or with food, with food, right, was 2.96. All items with, with food and energy was 2.82, and all items less food and energy was 2.99, right? Wow, interesting, yeah. So the point is, over long term, these things don't matter at all. That's right. <laughs> right? Right. But all you ever hear on you know the financial media is like, we have to exclude food and energy always. Right. And again, this is true <laughs> for... The, the seasonal and weather energy, but in general, um, it's irrelevant right? over a long-term period of time. Yeah. And this is something that the BLS wrote, and I can read, and I just read it to you. Now, again, here's again, 2.93, 2.96, 2.82, 2.99, effectively irrelevant, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but also point out this, Tracy, the annualized number is close to three. Yeah, that's higher than I would have thought. Higher than you would have thought. Um, and this is pre-financial crisis, so you know there was periods of time when we were at three from '82 to 2010. Right. So the other thing that can happen here is that we go up into the threes and stay there, just like we did then. Right. Will um, that will that freak out the stock market though? If we if we do get up into the threes. What do you think? I mean, just not, I'm not talking it way out, but like in the three, two, you know, two, nine ish, right? What do you think? Well, I think it all depends on what the Fed's reaction is going to be to that, if it maintains. The Fed has been trying to get inflation for years. Right. So I don't think they're going to freak out about it. No, I don't think so either. The tenure tells you it's not worried about it yet. Might be wrong. Yeah. Martin yeah. might be wrong. Fed might be wrong. But what this tells you is that we had a lot of Federal Reserve policy for a lot of years that basically tolerated 3% inflation within their statutory mandate. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so what this means is that, yeah, I think you're right to point out there's a wider band of acceptability to the Fed under their statutory mandate based on these historical numbers than people might realize. Yeah. And that's, so yeah, but the other thing to point out is it's entirely possible with the infrastructure package and other things that seem, you know, they haven't happened for 30 years that, that we get into the low threes. And then we got to remember what I just told you, that this is kind of we were already there. Right. Yeah. And so this is kind of worth thinking about. And uh, again, these are the things that are really interesting about being an economist and a stock strategist and not just one or the other is that so many people use these things. They don't even bother to read. Like this is an eight pager from the BLS. It's so easy, right? Yeah. yeah. But they just don't happen because it takes time and people don't want to have some kind of perspective on anything. Right. So as uh, for the investors who are listening in right now, it sounds like we're not to be concerned because the Fed is not concerned with these higher inflation numbers over, say, the next three months, especially on the year-over-year -year comparisons. They're going to be higher. But then it sounds like maybe starting around August or so is when we should maybe be paying more attention to the data. 
Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, my view is that everybody's put this discussion at least six months in advance of when it should be happening. Okay. And we probably need to have this discussion for 2022. And we start, start having it by, you know, October, right? Right. Uh, nothing relevant till then. And then only relevant then when we're down in the fours with unemployment, if we get there and the world economy has been vaccinated and there's some pickup of the demand coming from the international tourism rivals and destinations and whatnot. And, and people are comfortable with the COVID situation getting out yeah. in the vaccinated world, right? Got a lot of, we got a lot of, we got a lot of wood to chop to get to the worry about inflation. It's way too early. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. But what about if we do get some of these infrastructure plans, like even maybe, a, you know, a partial one put through just any kind of bigger, more spending package that, uh, you know, comes out of Washington, say something over 500 billion, anything over that. What what kind of impact could that have? Because I, I keep seeing everybody talking about not just the inflation aspect, but just overheating of the economy now. Is that a possibility? Well, this is this gets gets the economy versus the stock markets and the stock markets certainly can can or likely are overheated. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, for example, I, I was just doing this with you for a different thing on these you know, NASDAQ and all this stuff, I'll pull up the stuff on the returns with the last three years of the NASDAQ and where they are now. And what I find is pretty simply put that, you know, we're still in pretty strong year for the NASDAQ, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We got no signs yet that people are sick of tech stocks. NASDAQ was up 35.2% in 2019, 43.6% in 2020. And the last I looked this morning on April the 19th or yesterday was 7.8% over basically four months, right? Yeah. Yeah. So do, do it times four on 8%. We're going to do another basically 30% on the back of 35 and 44, right? Right. So, again, if we just ask ourselves, how dumb do we want to be? Let's just decide that 21 looks like 19 and 20 is our best guess. Somewhat somewhat weaker, but still 30%. Yeah, yeah. Right? And you yeah. and I want to, like, lose sleep over this? No. Um, or do we want to get out of this market, right? Well, that's that's the other thing. I keep seeing some people are like, oh, I'm I'm getting out. I'm going all into cash, trying to market time something. But that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, well, this is what is interesting. Again, this is the dichotomy people have between thinking about issues with the macroeconomic indicators as they're used by the government. And the idea that a lot of these things, even the Fed using them that through their statutory mandate are 30, 40 years old. So the Fed can stay super accommodated because we're not busting their statutory mandate. But the markets are way overheated and they're going to keep being overheated. Yeah, yeah. And this is just because of the way we do things. I'm not saying it's smart. It's just what it is. Yeah. And, you know, that's the other thing to realize is you there's just a whole lot of normative uh, judgments placed on this. And it's certainly true that we should be trying to work out, you know, new ways for the Fed mandate to be adjusted so this doesn't happen all the time. But at the end of the day, it happens. And for the next two years, it doesn't matter. Tech stock's probably going to work. Yeah. 
you know, so I should people should maybe consider if they're not already in just, you know, buying the QQQs or the QQQM, which is like the mini one that's a little cheaper, but it's the same thing. So why not? Why wouldn't you just buy the QQQs at this point? Yeah. I mean, big NASDAQ 100 indexes Yeah, in a in a properly weighted portfolio. Um, they could definitely go down for two, three quarters. That should not be a surprise. Yeah. A worry because you're getting better prices. And so you'd be like, great, I'm in it. I'll just I'll average in over the months and just get in on a nice bit of large cap NASDAQ names. It'll probably be my best play. Right, right. You know, yeah. and that that's really a decent point of, of view here is because um, the Fed doesn't have inflation as a 2021 problem, might have it, but very likely not have it in 2022. And the markets, you do fine until the Fed really, really, really gets off the sidelines, which is not going to be for a while because of the way this thing works. Right. What about the fears that the the bond vigilantes somehow will force the Fed's hand? That they, you know, we saw that run up in the 10 year, now it's pulled back again. So now everybody's calm again. <laughs> but what if the bond vigilantes take another run at, you know, 2% on the 10 year? Is that something to worry about? It'll definitely take the NASDAQ down. I don't think there's any yeah. question about it. Okay. As a dollar, if you're averaging in, you're gonna be fine to pick up cheaper things for a while, right? Yeah. I, I think it's really a problem for a trader who's momentum trading. I think this is not a good thing. Yeah, okay. Um, and we're seeing this, you know, with the Kathy Wood funds, even Tesla's gone sideways for a few months. Bitcoin is getting hammered rate lately. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are, are trying to momentum trade growth stocks and stuff, and they will probably get hammered pretty badly in that scenario. Okay. Yeah, that... that um... There was some pain a couple months ago already with some of the names, and that wasn't even super severe. You know, there was just like a eight to ten percent pullback with some. Although I do get tweets sent at me that some of the the Reddit, you know, Wall Street bets type stocks were down twenty or thirty percent during that period. So there was a little more pain with some of them. But yeah, yeah. And that's what we should point out. I mean, trying to get into really growthy names that have no profits and big stories yeah. um, is probably a losing hand for a lot of people. Okay. And what we're talking about in terms of the NASDAQ 100, it's really big cap stocks that you dollar average in is a totally different story than growth stocks that are, you know, four or five billion unicorn stocks. Yeah. There are things that have big names in biotech and stuff that you don't know beans about, but the stock moves up because you think you're smart about it. Right, right. I mean, this is just really not smart. Um, you and I were, you know, you gave a great talk, Tracy, a few weeks ago about uh, all these names back in the day, right? Yeah, in 1999. Right. And one of the names you had for me was Vertical Net, IPO date 2-10-99, February 10th, 99. The IPO price was 8, price on December 31st, 99, so basically... You know, 10 months later, it was at $164. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it went from an IPO price of 8 to $164. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was that was a good time back then. Okay, but here's the story. I pulled up vertical net on Wiki just to figure yeah, out what happens. Here's what I, here's what I'm going to write to just so we can talk this through. Vertical Net Doc Inc. was a host of 43 business to business B two B procurement portals headquartered in Horsham, Pennsylvania. Oh. It was famous for its market capitalization of $10.89 billion on March the 10th, 2000, during the dot-com bubble, despite <laughs> sales of only $112.5 million in 2000. Wow. Vertical Net was acquired by Bravo Solutions in 2008 for $15.2 million. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Talk about wealth destruction. Yeah, well, you know what's interesting about this list of things you brought provide is vertical, vertical, just the name, vertical net, right? Yeah. It was vertically integrated business to business. This was the big buzz, business to business portals. It went on 164 bucks, 10.9 billion in market cap, and it ultimately created $15 million in value. Yeah. $15 million. I know. At least it stayed in business, though. That's impressive. Yeah, well, you know, I went through all these other names. Ariba and Red Hat were the top 10 names you provided us are still with us. Red Hat is still around, of course, yes. the operating system. Ariba was another one of these business, the business things that worked. It sold to SAP for $4 billion in 2012, which was its IPO price was $4 billion. It went to 177 but then it went back. It, at $11.5 a share in 1998, the IPO price. 10 to 12 years later, it sold again to SAP at the IPO price. Wow. And that's the best other than Red Hat that did, right? Wow. So yeah. there's lessons here of this whole growth stock thing is, number one, the only name that worked was Red Hat, which was a given operating system, a actual given product, right? Uh, yeah. The other things are buzzwords, big business ideas. Business to business was the big buzzword at that time. They all ran it. And basically, the best business of all was one of the 10 met its IPO price 12 years later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a cautionary tale right there. Yeah, that's, that's how we're that's telling it. Is, you, you do get these companies that, you know, are, are problematic. But are we at the height of this bubble with the SPACs, <laughs> listings, these IPOs? Yeah, well, I, I went through your list of the SPACs, and I, the biggest one is this one called QuantumScape. Yes. Okay, I, I, I Google QuantumScape, and here's the story here. I'm just reading this to you again. QuantumScape is an American company that does re research. It doesn't produce anything. It does research about solid-state lithium metal batteries for electric cars. That's right. The company, company is headquartered in San Jose, California, and employs around 200 people. Investors include Bill Gates and Volkswagen. Okay. So we got less than 200 people or around 200 people doing research into solid state lithium metal batteries, and the stock went up 1,200% in a year. Right. Well, What's wrong with that, Tracy? Doesn't sound good. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds a little bubblicious. Yeah, because the prop, this is what we're learning is when you look at the Red Hat story, Red Hat had a true operating system then in the beginning right yeah uh -huh. when things say we're researching a hot idea <laughs> I, I didn't say producing i said researching right right that is like i call tracy up <laughs> you say i got an idea john i'm researching 
and I buy your story and I run it up 1200% on your idea that you're researching, Tracy. <laughs> hey, that's capitalism. Yeah, well, it's this version <laughs> of capitalism. You know, back to the 55, 57 with less food and 77 less energy. The yeah. last 20 years have been about these absurd money before product, uh, you know, bubbles, right? Yeah. yeah. And we're in one. I don't think anybody should question that we're, we're, we're having the battery moment that we had with the operating system B2B internet moment 20 years ago, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got a, a story that is relevant for somebody who gets it right. I mean, we know that there's a $2 trillion company called Apple, but it was around in 2000. We know Google worked at a trillion. It was the one good idea. We know Amazon worked. Right. We know Netflix worked. We know Facebook worked. And then we don't know what worked. Right? Right. Right. But five of them worked. Five. Yeah. And that was after massive murders and decades of time and all this stuff. Yeah. So that brings us all the way back to, you know, why not stick with the NASDAQ 100 over trying to be the genius to find quantum scope? Right. Right. I mean, honestly, maybe 20 years from now, someone will listen to this podcast and quantum scape will be up there with that, you know, Apple. I don't know. Yeah. Imagine getting um, the 30% return over, you know, multiple years here, though. What kind of return that is. So I have a list of the top 30 S&P 500 stocks, all that rattling. I'm getting it out here. And um, only, let's see, only two stocks, but this is over 30 years from 1990 to 2020, only two stocks have returned over 30% annualized during that period. Yeah. Everything else was still good, but they're all in the 20%, the top 30 names. Yeah. But, and so why not just buy the QQQs and, and get 30%? Wow. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you, that's it. You really don't want to overthink it, right? Yeah. Okay, you also so want to time it in the sense that you actually should and should expect through this cor a correction you know, two, three, four quarters long and just get the good prices and then not pick the bottom on that either and just kind of come in at it, chip away at it, right? Right. But what about if I want to avoid the sell-off um, that may be coming in the tech names and I want to go for you know other areas like industrials, healthcare, whatever else is going on out there? should a lot of those are stretched too so i own a couple of those kind of big names in the other areas in the insider trader right now so i own fast and all ticker fast and united health group unh in there because some insiders did buy in both of those companies they both just had excellent earnings the stocks are either at or just just above their all-time highs here they're both kind of hanging out right there um, UNH is kind of just slowly grinding to these new highs every day, but neither one is cheap. Fastenal is trading at 32 times. UNH is a little cheaper at 21 times, but that's not cheap really either. Should should I be still getting into these kinds of stocks here? The insiders did, but they got in a couple months ago now, and the stocks have risen off of when they got in. But is this a is this an area like these types of stocks or even like Abbott Labs? They just reported ABT and they're going to make the 
the, you know, buy at the Walgreens or CVS little kits you can do to get the COVID tests like at home. That seems like that could be a hot product, right? Um, but they're trading at 24 times as well, near their their all-time high, I believe it is, as well. So is is it too late kind of to get into those names? What do you think? What do you, what do you think? Well, I mean... They do keep grinding higher, um, and they are in the reopen. Well, at least Fastenal is one of the reopeny type trades, but even UNH is too, because so many people put off so many medical procedures. And um, now that Biden is in the White House, they're not getting rid of Obamacare, and there's Medicare, Medicaid expansion, and Medicare is, uh, you know, gonna maybe have some reform here too. All that should help UNH as well. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I kind of like some of these bigger old economy names here, even at the highs. Yeah, I mean, I think I tend to agree with you. I, but again, I, I think I would have a pretty short leash on some of these names. I wouldn't okay. think we lost on any of it. Yeah. You know, so 50% stops and just kind of run with it. But if they start blowing it out, just get out for whatever reason they're going to blow out. But if they don't, yeah, I don't understand. In a situation where, you know, we have this so much support um, and it's very unlikely that there'll be a recession, all you're going to do is, you know, see some corrections now and again on a stock like that. Yeah. But again, this gets to, you know, should you buy it now versus should you buy it during a correction? Right. Um, again, that's it's just an almost almost impossible to see when that stuff comes because otherwise you would stop and do it then, right? Right. Right. So you don't you're not going to see it because nobody else is going to see it. Um, but it does argue for you know having very high levels of cash right now. Okay. I do think if you're going to buy a fast and all, don't buy all of it. Right. Okay. So maybe dollar cost average into these. Or just buy, you know, if you wanted all of, you know, you want to buy a third of what you want. Right. So you watch it and pay attention to it. Yeah. And then just sit there. And so you start learning fast and all and have a third of the position you want and then have the cash set aside to pick up the other parts once you understand how it trades. Okay. Because everything's pretty pricey. So getting a small position and then deciding what, to learn something and then maybe, you know, over a year or two put in the rest on four, five, six names might be a better way to go. Because then you have your cash or it goes to pieces and you're not going to freak out. Yeah. Now, what do you think about large cap versus small cap here? The smalls have had a nice run. Yeah, that's probably going to go again for a while here. I can't see that ending for a while. Okay. But I wouldn't get aggressive about it either okay so you still like the small caps i do yeah i do i think that runs going to carry on for a while for the same reasons i just don't see what's going to stop it and i do see what's going to keep it going a lot of what's going on you know as you i think it would agree to is just there's nothing stopping this stuff right, right. And the, underlying, the underlying fundamentals are are strong yeah, and then, and then people just don't care about these valuations that much. They just don't care. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I mean, a lot of the times I get less panicky when people do a two-year forward multiple instead of a one-year forward multiple. 
which is yeah. another way to calm your blood pressure. Just go, what what does earnings look like in the stock two years from now versus the price now? And usually you can go, oh, it's not that bad. You know, if it ain't twenty percent fast and all those twenty percent and then twenty percent, then I and I'm gonna hold it for five years. It's gonna be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Fastenal, um, you know, they're on the manufacturing side, so they are seeing an uptick in in demand there, which they should. But yeah, uh, you know, I, I like some big names like Logi, Logitech. Okay. And I like um, names like Panasonic. You know, okay. you can again back to the Red Hat model. The thing you want here is somebody who actually makes something in a tech company. Okay. I mean, the lesson of the 2000 bubbles is don't buy stuff that where you don't actually know what people do and make. Right. Just, I mean, Red Hat was a product. If you say you understood Red Hat was good and you understood the product, you probably got it right. Listening to some guys blab about vertical net, you just really got it wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> but again, I mean, Panasonic, so do I know what they make? And, you know, do I buy that stuff? Right? Right. Logitech's all these peripherals and all this stuff you can buy. Then you can go to Logitech and see what they sell you. Yeah. What What's the ticket? Ticket? Ticker? L-O-G-I. Okay. And what's Panasonic's? Panasonic is a Japanese ticker, and it starts – I'm going to pull it up for you here. Yeah. I think it's like a – isn't it? P-C-R-F-Y. Yeah. I, I thought it was one of the ones that was like a five. Yeah. And the other thing – let's throw out Cisco, C-S-C-O. Here's a name that, again, this name was in every Janus one 20 years ago, still around, probably going to work because it's been so overlooked, right? Sure. Again, it's batters, it's networks, they probably got their model together on this curve of whatever is going on out there. And again, not aggressive name, but probably going to do fine. Yeah. I like Corvo, Q, ticker QRVO. It's a chip name that I like, you know? Okay. So I generally would, you know, be buying – like I said, small positions in tech stocks and then buying them later when if they blow up when the tenure goes up or something. Okay. That sounds like a good strategy. But the key is everybody should have some kind of strategy as well. Yeah, know what you own, right? I mean, know at least the basic story, right? And don't listen to big vertical net stories. Don't listen to stuff that if you, you don't have – I mean, you got to remember most of these portfolio managers have to buy big cap names. And they aren't going to – one thing I've learned in investing I didn't understand until I started doing it with Zach's is you don't have to be – you don't get much reward out of looking into a lot of stuff. Right. You really don't. Yep. I mean, you don't Google. Google's the best thing this year, 31% year to date. Well, right. how, how easy was that, Tracy? Yeah. Uh-huh. Right? It's just staring you right in the face, right? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> you, you do a ton of work and it's, you know – the, the small cap growth fund, or you could buy Google and it'll be up 30%. Why, why even bother? You know? Yeah, yeah. This is kind of what's going on. I, I, again, let's not be normative. Let's not say this is good or bad. This is what's going on. This is how it works. Right? right, right. Not normative statement on my part. Yeah. I'm not saying it's good or bad. Right, right. All right. Well, let me recap some of the tickers we talked about on today's episode in case you missed any of them, because some of them were just kind of thrown in there. So if you just want to own just the, the overall techs, you can go for the QQQs. That's been around for over 20 years now. 
But there is also this QQQ Mini that is about half the price of the QQQs. So if you want to buy more shares, you can buy the Mini. They made it to be a little more accessible, and it's QQQM as in Mary is the ticker on that one. But it holds the same the same uh, Nasdaq stocks as the regular QQQ. Uh, then we talked about Fastenal, FAST, and United Health Group, both in my insider trader, UNH, Abbott Labs. They just reported. They're out there. ABT also trading near highs. Then we had Logitech, L-O-G-I. The Panasonic ticker is P-C-R-F-Y. It's one of the five letters, P-C-R-F-Y. Corvo is Q-R-V-O. And then we finished with the obvious one, Alphabet, hitting new all-time highs out there. G-O-O-G-L is the ticker. And always, we'll have John back on, um, maybe as we get closer to that summer date there, maybe in August, to talk about what's happening again with the economy, inflation, all of the things we talked about today. Were we right? And is the Fed going to be right on some of its predictions? We will find out. So you don't want to miss a single episode. Get us on Apple Podcasts. We are on SoundCloud. You can get us on Spotify. We are also on Amazon Music. But make sure you get us somewhere. And I'll see you again next week with some more stocks. This material is being provided for informational purposes only, and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identify described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's investment research as a whole.